This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope at Room Now. I'm thinking about a roundup of some of the learnings uh, from this great ACR 2020 convergence. Um, so I'd like to tell you about learning from a cohort. So I'm going to talk about the early rheumatoid arthritis incident cohort or the CATCH cohort from Canada. So this has over 3000 patients. And the first thing I'd like to talk about is uh, very applicable to us doing telemedicine during the uh, COVID era. So abstract number 483 compared the CDI, that would be the traditional uh, clinical disease activity index which as you know, is um, MD global, patient global, swollen joint count, tender joint count. And it compared with a patient CDI that obviously would be the patients doing their own tender and swollen joints and giving their global assessment. And what it found was that there was really high agreement at both ends. The agreement or kappa was about 0.7, which is pretty good at both ends. So if the patient says, my RA is doing really well and I've actually gone through this and my tender and swollen joint counts are low, you should agree with them. And at the other end, if they say my tender and swollen joint count is high, my CDI is really high, you should probably agree with them as well because agreement in the middle was a little bit more scattered, but the ends were quite agreement uh, in agreement. So I think that's important when we're doing telemedicine. The next is what about regional and widespread pain? So we've published in the CATCH cohort before that incident fibromyalgia is about five to tenfold higher in the first two years of getting rheumatoid arthritis. What abstract 187 looked at was what about regional pain and widespread pain and how does it change in the first year? So first of all, pain is common when you have new rheumatoid arthritis. One third of patients at the beginning of the study had regional pain and fortunately it went down to a quarter at the end of a year. Whereas widespread pain was one in five at the beginning of the study, and at one year, it also cut in half to about one in 10. So some of these patients will have residual pain, and it does affect uh, their global assessment of what's going on. Then to look further, what about remission? So abstract 1715 looked at remission. So I'll give you the good news and then not the good news. The good news is 55% of the patients followed, over 3,000 patients had an SDI remission ever. So the good news is more than half. The bad news is 45% never achieved uh, remission in early RA that are being uh, followed over time. But there's even more bad news. Of the 55% of patients who were in SDI remission, over the next two years, half won't stay in remission. So we need predictors of who will get into remission and who won't, but also who will stay, sustain remission. And maybe it's related, maybe it's not to medication beliefs. So abstract number 151 said half the patients don't believe meds are necessary for their RA. That doesn't mean they're taking the meds. They might think they're not necessary long-term because they have it, what they think of as an acute problem of pain, but they do have a chronic disease. The final lesson learned from this cohort is that if you have poor 
function re reported as your hack, you have a far higher chance of dying. So abstract 1736 looked at mortality related to hack. And it's not just the comorbidities of coming in with a high hack, because it was predictive at one year for mortality, and it was less predictive at baseline. So what does that mean? That if you can't improve function from your RA deficits over that first year, you have a poor predictor of survival in the long term. So I think we can learn an awful lot from cohort studies. These are sometimes difficult to fund because the questions can vary depending on what we're finding, but these are all important lessons learned. So take care and follow us at room now. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Nicola Dilbeth uh, from Auckland, New Zealand, uh, and today I'm going to be talking about the results of the FAST study. Uh, this is abstract L08, and this was presented today at the uh, ACR convergence meeting. So, uh, of course, cardiovascular disease is a very common comorbidity in people with gout, um, and our Treatment options have been um, somewhat uncertain in the last couple of years following the uh, publication of the CARES trial, uh, which reported increased cardiovascular and all-cause mortality uh, in uh, patients uh, prescribed for buxostat compared with allopurinol. So we've all really been waiting uh, eagerly for the results of the FAST trial. So this is essentially the European uh, post-regulatory approval cardiovascular outcome study comparing fibuxostat with allopurinol. Uh, this was uh, mandated uh, by the EMA at the time of approval of fibuxostat. So this is an open-label non-inferiority trial um, with uh, a cardiovascular uh, outcomes as the primary endpoint. So participants in the study all had gout. They were 60 years old or, or older. And uh, at the time of going into the study, they were all taking allopurinol. All had at least one cardiovascular risk factor, uh, and about a third had established cardiovascular disease. I think it is important to note that uh, people with severe heart failure were excluded, and also those who'd had a cardiovascular event or stroke in the preceding six months. So there was a run-in period where participants uh, had uh, dose escalation of allopurinol to achieve a serum uh, target of less than six milligrams per deciliter. And then they were randomized to uh, either continue with allopurinol or switch to fibuxostat, initially 80 milligrams daily, increasing to 120 milligrams daily if needed. Most people were able to uh, achieve a serum target on fibuxostat 80 milligrams daily. So there was actually very little uh, dose escalation of fibuxostat. The primary outcome measure was uh, adjudicated cardiovascular events or death. Uh, and importantly, uh, this was a study done in uh, predominantly Denmark and uh, the UK. So there was very good uh, record linkage and they uh, were able to achieve very good follow-up. Um, so just briefly to mention the gout outcomes. So uh, there was slightly more serum urate uh, lowering uh, with fibuxostat compared to allopurinol, but really no appreciative, uh, appreciable difference in the gout flares between the two groups. But now getting on to the really 
uh, important outcome um, for this trial, which was the, the primary outcome of, um, of cardiovascular safety. Overall, the bupsostat was non-inferior to allopurinol with respect to the primary outcome and also for uh, mortality uh, outcomes. In fact, the hazard ratio was, uh, was actually slightly lower, although not statistically different, uh, at 0.85 for the primary outcome, uh, which actually uh, showed a, a potential benefit of uh, the buxostat compared to allopurinol. Again, not statistically significant, but really no uh, signal of worse outcomes with the buxostat. Uh, with respect to the deaths, there were numerically fewer deaths in the febuxostat group compared with the allopurinol group. So 7.2% with febuxostat uh, and 8.6% with allopurinol. And overall, SAEs were otherwise uh, similar. Uh, importantly, with this study, uh, there was very good follow-up. So 94% uh, had complete follow-up. And this was really enhanced by the record linkage. Uh, and I think it, it, this is really an important point because there was a huge amount of uh, loss to follow up from the CARES trial. So uh, what's the implication for, uh, of, this, of this result? Well, I think it really does provide us uh, with some reassurance that switching from allopurinol to febuxostat is safe. Uh, and this is in, includes in people who have cardiovascular risk factors. Um, and so I think this will change my practice. Uh, and uh, I think will also help us a lot to reassure patients uh, when we're talking about the safety of urate-lowering therapy. Thanks. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I want to introduce you to an amazing man who was instrumental in making me into a rheumatologist when he accepted me into the UT Southwestern Fellowship Program almost two decades ago. Dr. David Karp was recently installed as our 84th American College of Rheumatology president. Dr. Karp, welcome and thank you for allowing me to ask you a lot of questions like I did during fellowship. Well, thank you for inviting me, Catherine. And uh, yes, you were a great fellow and, and I've followed your career since then. And you know, uh, it is uh, with great pleasure that we welcome you back to, to UT Southwestern uh, oh, about a year ago and, and uh, have you now on our faculty. Thank you. Well, the first question I'm going to ask is something a lot of viewers want to know, but they're really ashamed to ask. What's the job of an ACR president in the event one of us wants to apply for the position in the future? Well, uh, the, the job of the ACR president has changed a little bit, just like all of our jobs have changed in the, in the last year. If you asked me about this uh, a year ago, I would say it's uh, spending a lot of time in, in uh, airport uh, uh, lounges and, and uh, uh, hotel meeting rooms. Uh, but now we're doing it like we're having this uh, interview uh, uh, tonight. It's, it's all on, on Zoom. But uh, there's a, a lot of meetings. Uh, the executive committee, uh, which consists of the, the president, the president-elect, the, the secretary, the treasurer, and then the, the, the foundation uh, president and, and president-elect and, and the ARP president and president-elect all get together uh, uh, typically on a monthly basis uh, and, and talk about a lot of the sort of details that go on behind the scenes. I mean, the, the, a lot of people you know, think of the, you know, of the ACR as the annual meeting convergence that we just had. Uh, but there's a lot that goes on uh, in between times. Uh, our our uh, 
the, the committee updates, the, 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 the work of the college, such as our guidelines or criteria, uh, our collaborations with ULAR and ILAR and, and, and other organizations. So, um, you know, there's a, a lot of that sort of minutia, if you will. Uh, it's just like running another business. You, you have to get together. And of course, we have our board of directors meetings that, that uh, occur throughout the year and, and the, the ACR president leads those. So uh, it's kind of like being a, a, a division chief or a department chair, but uh, for a much bigger group of people. That's a lot of work. It's almost like um, when I was growing up, my dad went to work, but I never knew what he did. So thanks for <laughs> clarifying that. Yeah, yeah. So what are your goals for the college during your tenure? Well, you know, there are a couple of things and, and uh, thank you for, I saw you, you, you uh, tweeted today because the, the rheumatologist article came, came out as well. So there have been, you know, a number of things that, that uh, we put in place uh, this year that are not related to COVID and we really do need to, to operationalize them and, and uh, uh, get them going. Um, you know, the, the first of one is that, uh, you know, we have not taken a good look at, at how the ACR is organized, you know, for almost 30 years. And just like uh, any other business or organization, it's important to, to be self-reflective and make sure that you are uh, organized in a way that uh, meets the, the needs of your customers. And, and our customers are our members, the, the physicians and health professionals who make up our, our membership. And when I say organized, I'm talking about you know, the volunteer committees as well as the staff in Atlanta uh, that have uh, been in place. Things like our Committee on Training and Workforce and Education and, and Research. And those have served us remarkably well for the past three decades and, and we've gotten a lot done. But we need to make sure that we are, we are really organized in a way that's, that's uh, nimble and uh, can allow us to, to take on new challenges. Uh, uh, you know, throughout the, throughout the year. Um, so we have a, a, a committee, a governance task force that is now headed by Dr. Angus Worthing, who is, you know, is a, a, a community practitioner from Washington, DC. And uh, uh, Dr. Abby Abelson, who is the, the, the uh, chair of, the, of rheumatology at the Cleveland Clinic. And the task force has is about half community rheumatologists. So we wanna be certain that, that uh, that we are, are meeting the needs of all of our members, not just the academicians who seem to have more time for, for, to volunteer for the, the, the ACR, but uh, the, the community rheumatologists that make up such a big part of our, our membership. So they'll uh, provide the board with some ideas in the, in the spring and we'll see where we, we go with that. I love it. Um, and I love the fact that you've, you're always inclusive, whether um, it's from diversity in race or in sex or anything like that. And when I read the rheumatologist saying how you're going to tackle this, and I mean, I just think that this is um, something that we all need. And I'm just so glad that you're, you're up to this challenge. Um, do you think there are other challenges that rheumatologists will encounter? And how is the ACR poised to help its members? Well, you know, the, the big elephant in the room, uh, the one that's, uh, that's not going to go away for a while, I'm afraid, is COVID-19. And, and so, you know, one of the challenges, a very specific challenge that, that rheumatologists are going to face, you know, hopefully pretty soon, are questions from their patients. Uh, you, know, you know, Dr. Dow, should I get vaccinated against uh, COVID-19? And there are five vaccines. Which one should I take? 
So, you know, the, 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 the ACR has, uh, has looked at this, you know, and I, I don't know if you, you saw, but there was a call for volunteers uh, in the last month to, to staff another uh, couple of task forces or groups that'll work with our quality of care uh, committee to look at number one, uh, vaccines in general, because we really don't have much uh, guidance for uh, vaccinating our, our patients other than for RA. And we want to try and, and uh, expand that to, to lupus and, and uh, other, other conditions where the vaccine advice is probably going to be close to the same, but, but might have some nuanced differences. And then, uh, you know, as I just mentioned, we'll have a, a group that'll uh, include um, uh, experts from infectious disease and, and other areas that will help us decide whether there uh, is a difference between a, an RNA vaccine or a protein vaccine or an adenovirus vaccine for COVID-19, and which ones will, will we recommend to our patients? Uh, will they work in our patients who are uh, getting immunosuppressive medications? Will they be safe in, in somebody whose uh, autoimmune disease might be triggered by uh, a, a vaccination? So those are very important questions, and I think the, the ACR really needs to provide those answers to our, uh, our patients and our, and, our, and our members, because uh, that's going to be upon us, you know, maybe by the first of the year, and, and we're, we're getting on top of that very soon. Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's a Herculean task, for sure. And um, I mean, I was very impressed with how the ACR had communicated with its membership and also like having these town halls. I mean, they were so helpful. And especially since we're so isolated where we are, do you think that's gonna continue? And especially just to give us some guidance with these vaccines? Well, yes. I mean, I think the, the, the we, as uh, Ellen Gravelisi pointed out in her, in her uh, presidential address, you know, the, the, the upside of COVID-19 is that it's uh, taught us how to react very quickly and thoughtfully and intentionally. Uh, and how to be able to, to work uh, at a distance. I mean, uh, you know, again, a year ago, uh, you know, if you told me we want to put together a task force, the first thing we would have done was looked at everybody's schedules and could we get people on an airplane and a hotel and, and book this and book that. And now it's just like, can we meet tomorrow night on, by Zoom? And yes, we can. So we can get a lot done quickly. And that's how we're going to be operating, I think, for the next next year. Uh, you know, I'm I'm very hopeful um, that we could have some kind of meeting in San Francisco uh, next year for the for convergence. But uh, you know, I'm not 100% optimistic. We'll have to see. But in the meantime, yes, we're going to be getting this information that's important uh, to our members out via uh, the, the 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 channels that we have learned this past year. That's great. And you had mentioned about next year's meeting. I mean, this has been like a one-of-a-kind experience, um, how the ACR had converged together with more than 16,000 people from around the world. Um, I mean, I can only envision that future meetings, you can't eliminate the, the video and audio <laughs> portion of this because people who can't get to the meeting, you know, have access to like some world-class research. I mean, is this something that we're going to look forward to, even though, you know, maybe the world's opened up again? Sure. So, you know, it, it's, again, a, a little bit ironic, but, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the ACR uh, leadership had been looking at, at how we deliver our education for, uh, for over a year. You know, we, we did what we normally do. We, we, we have had some consultants look at, at the uh, educational offerings and give us some, uh, uh, some suggestions of things that we could do. And 
Last February, the board uh, met for the last time uh, in real life. Uh, and, uh, and one of the things we did was we, we passed our strategic plan for education, uh, which included a, you know, three years of building on, on what we did last year in, in Atlanta uh, and uh, some of the innovations that we had, you, you, uh, including therapy dogs at the, at the meeting, but lots of things like the community hubs that we tried out last year. Uh, and one of the things that we suggested was that uh, at the end of three years, we were gonna try doing some virtual meetings. And that got flipped. And so everything was virtual this year. And I think what we'll see is a hybrid meeting uh, in the future. You're right, you know, uh, we got a fantastic number of people from uh, around the globe coming to our, our meeting this year. And we wanna continue to provide that high quality educational experience to people who, you know, whether it's somebody from uh, uh, a, a part of the, the world that is not rich in resources and, and can't get on an airplane and, and fly to the United States, or, you know, somebody who just doesn't have the time to, to come from uh, Dallas, Texas, because they have a, a, a busy practice and, and, you know, wants to, to drop in and, and get the, the education that they need, uh, uh, you know, when they want it, where they want it, uh, rather than having to, you know, book a flight in a hotel and, and spend, uh, uh, you know, four or five days uh, away from their family. So I think we're going to continue to see virtual uh, offerings as part of our meetings, hopefully as a, as a hybrid meeting, because, you know, I just crave the networking and, and seeing my, my best friends in, in rheumatology at the meeting. And, you know, you carry like two different hats, one as um, chief and, you know, basically running this whole fellowship program, huge program in Dallas, and then the other as now ACR president. I mean, many of our viewers are younger, they're fellows, um, and they want to be involved. So how, how can they be involved um, to kind of help with everything that the ACR has to offer and, and be a contributing member? Well, uh, I appreciate that because uh, we, we have a lot of people who want to volunteer and we've over the years worried a bit about the fact that uh, uh, you know, younger uh, members uh, and particularly you know, women who, who unfortunately bear a lot of the, 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 uh, the, the jobs at, at home uh, with childcare and the like, just can't take off for a, a weekend and go to a, a hotel and, and spend time uh, at a, a committee meeting. And again, this is uh, one of these, uh, you know, virtues, if you will, of, of, uh, of a pandemic is it's taught us that we can have a lot of meetings at times when, you know, people can now, uh, you know, don't have to get on an airplane and can spend a, a 15 minutes here or a half an hour there or, you know, uh, part of a day uh, and, and actually, uh, you know, give us uh, some great ideas. And our governance task force is going to be thinking about some ways that, that we can improve that. So. I would suggest that that people uh, just you know look at the offerings that the that the college has as far as volunteer offerings, uh, and we are going to try and and you know make things available to people that are maybe outside the the um, the normal you know committee structure, but would give somebody a chance to contribute you know their experience, their knowledge, their expertise uh, to the greater good of the college because there's just so so much. Uh, you know, great uh, experience uh, within our college that, that uh, we need to tap into that to become a, a better profession. I agree. Now, the final question here, because I know you're a busy man. Um, in the rheumatologist, you mentioned you're an inveterate 
cruciverbalist. Could you right. kind of tell me what that is? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a clue. If you if you you know, it's one of those things. If you if you have to look it up, you know. I read uh, it as I, invertebrate <laughs> instead of invertebrate. No, not that. Uh, no, I'm I'm addicted to crossword puzzles, and uh, I try and get the the New York Times done every day if I can, uh, and. Uh, uh, that's 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 my relaxation is uh, you know sitting down with a good crossword puzzle. So you listened to NPR, the Puzzle Master, too. Uh, I, I did. I, uh, that was always something to to do on a on a Saturday morning. So yeah, there awesome. there are some NPR. Some of my in addition to Room Now, the other podcasts that I listen to are sometimes NPR you know quiz shows. But uh, yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Karp. I really appreciate you taking this time with me and with our viewers um, to get you to know you better. And so this is Dr. Katherine Dow for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Thank you, Kat. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope at Room Now. I'd like to give a bit of a roundup. And my first theme is really learning from a large database. And this is going to be lifestyle behaviors prior to the onset of disease. So there were two large studies of the Nurses Health Study. And the Nurses Health Study actually has uh, two very large cohorts. And it really is an incident cohort study because people don't have a particular disease of interest and then going forward. And the question in both these studies, well, in this in the study of nurses' health study, the two abstracts were: what about modifiable risks for obtaining um, diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis or lupus in the future? And the first abstract was for rheumatoid arthritis, abstract number one one nine eight. And they looked at a validated cardiovascular risk of modifiable risk factors. So they looked at diet and better diet in the upper 40%, exercise that was somewhat aggressive each week, some degree of alcohol drinking, no smoking ever, and having a normal BMI. And what they found was in a sort of dose response, if you had uh, none of these uh, modifiable things in favor, you had more rheumatoid arthritis than if you had, say, two, three, or four of the or five of the modifiable risk factors. And basically, one third of rheumatoid arthritis uh, in the nurses' health study could be explained by uh, not having these healthy living uh, variables. Then they also looked at SLE, so May Choi and others uh, from uh, Harvard looked at uh, the same idea in lupus, and they actually found up to 50% of uh, modifiable risk factors could explain getting lupus. That was abstract number 1473. So what we don't know in any large uh, database like this is what about major life events? What about stress? What about infections prior? Also, we know that lifestyle features are interrelated. This group has already shown that high BMI or high BMI and smoking give more ACPA RA as a for instance. The other limitations are what about the generalizability? These were all nurses, they're completing their forms. So education is higher. These were all nurses who were women for the study. So we don't know about the generalizability of the men. And the elephant in the room, I think, is also what about poverty? We can't address the higher impact that maybe uh, 
poverty would have on people with overcrowding, more infections, worse lifestyles, health-related behaviors that maybe are less modifiable. However, overall, I think that in general, living a healthy lifestyle makes a lot of sense. And in particular, for our at-risk patients, such as first-degree relatives, um, when they say, you know, my relative has RA or lupus, what should I do? I think we have a good recipe to give them. Hard to follow the recipe, but it's a great one. Thanks. Follow us at Room now.